able to do things and go places and hear things and see things and notice things that I never noticed before. What is it that these people have done to me? Well, hopefully right here in the very first verse of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we will be able to ask and answer that question, what is it as a believer in Jesus Christ that God has done to me? Uh, because that is really exactly what happened, that when you trust Jesus Christ, it's God who has done something to you. It's God who has done something for you. Something about you has fundamentally changed when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you will stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we will be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your word, thank you for this truth, and thank you for doing for us what we could not do ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. What did God do to me? Well, if you have trusted Christ, he certainly did something. Um, so I want us to look today and figure out exactly what that is and what the ongoing effects of that will be. Um, so let's just dive right in. Starting in verse 1, we're actually going to divide this into two halves tonight. and We're going to see how if, you, if we look back at what Paul was writing to the Ephesians, the Gentile believers in Ephesus had been spirit, spiritually dead. They had been in bondage to the devil and to their natures, but God mercifully made them alive in Christ in order to show them the riches of His grace. Um, for us today, anybody who does not know Christ is spiritually dead, in bondage to the devil and to our nature. But God can, however, make you alive in Christ and a participant in the riches of His grace. Uh, I want you to know today that if you are outside of Christ, you are dead in your sins and you are destined for wrath. Isn't that a wonderful way to start a sunny Sunday morning? Um, it gets better, I promise. Um, start here in verse 1. Uh, and you he made alive. Now, if some of you are using uh, different translations, I know if you've got an NIV, if you've got a New American Standard, if you're using our Holman Christian Standard Pew Bibles, you do not see the words he made alive. You just say, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. So you might wonder, Pastor, why are you reading the words he made alive? If you've got a new King James, you'll notice the words he made alive are in italics. What's going on? Well, those words are not represented in the original text. So why did your translator decide to put them there? Now, well, it, short grammar lesson, the word you, if you look at it in Greek, is in what's called the accusative case. That means it's a direct object. Um, what is a direct object? If you remember back to your time in English class, which I remembered fondly because I'm weird and that was my favorite class, uh, the direct object is what receives the action of a verb. So if I say, I kicked the ball, 
the ball would be the direct object. It's what received the action of the kicking that I did. Well, in Greek, you got kind of a weird thing going on here. You is a direct object, but we don't have a verb. So someone is doing something to you, to us, to these Gentile believers in Ephesus. So we've got to figure out, and based on what else has been going on thus far in Ephesians, whoever it is doing this to this group of people is most likely God. So what is it? What did God do to me? We're going to spend the rest of this passage figuring that out. So the reason that the translators of the New King James decided to supply he made alive, other than the obviousness of verse 4, is what follows. Who were dead, not sick, not hindered, not dying, dead. Don't so soften the blow of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. When Paul says we were dead, he meant we were dead. Uh, I want you to think back to the last time somebody, somebody died that you loved and you, you went to their visitation. Who were you visiting? Were you visiting them or were you visiting their family? You were visiting their family. Why? Because you can't visit a dead person. You can't speak to a dead person. You can't reason with a dead person. You can't have that one last conversation with a dead person. Paul says you were dead. Unresponsive. Totally helpless on their own. Uh, and what was the state in which we were dead? In trespasses and sins. When we're spiritually dead, this is the state we exist in. We exist in a state where sin and trespass is normal and unresponsiveness to God is the rule. See, when, when, when we as... If you're a Christian, if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever thought this before when, when you see somebody that you, you wish would come to know the Lord Jesus? You see them, has the thought ever crossed your mind? Well, I just wish they would understand they need to be here. They need to be at church. They need to be in Sunday school. They need to be reading their Bible. They need to be praying. Here's the problem with that. Everything we're saying we wish these people would do, they're actions that take place in the life of someone who is spiritually alive. You can wish all day long for a dead person to do living people things, but as long as they're dead, they're not going to do it. It doesn't make sense to look at a lost person and say, you need to get your life straight. Biblically, the question is, what life? There's not a life to get straight. They are spiritually dead. When you see a spiritually... Do not expect a lost person to act like someone who is spiritually alive. Ever. It's, it, it's not going to happen. They're spiritually dead. Evangelistically, let me speak to my Stapleton Baptist members here. If you ever invite somebody to church that you know is lost... Don't get frustrated with them when they react to church like a lost person. 
Don't expect them to come in knowing, necessarily knowing their Bible or totally being respons responsive to the Word. Yes, bring them, but understand the situation that they're in. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, you're probably sitting there and you're like, Josh, you're crazy. I'm sitting here, my heart's beating, I'm breathing. I got lunch waiting on me when I get out of here. I'm alive. Physically, yes. But spiritually, you are dead. You have no spiritual life. How do I know? Well, when you look at your life, do you see it characterized by sin and trespass? That's the state in which you exist if you are spiritually dead. And sometimes as Christians, we make the mistake of being confused or frustrated or angry, and we forget this about spiritual deadness. And we, we start to think as the actions are what lead to a person's spiritual life. If I could just get them behaving this way, if I could just get them doing these things, then we'd be on the right road. No, that's, that, that's actually much the opposite. Do you, th this is what happens when you dress up a, a dead person and you put them in a casket. You make them look nice, you do their hair, you, you put the makeup on their face and their... And, and people walk up and they say, oh, they look so good. I know some Christians like that. Christians. Oh, they look so good. Oh, they've been a church member for years. Oh, they know all the hymns. They show up. They wear nice clothes. They don't cuss. They do nice things for people. Woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, on the outside beautiful, but on the inside dead and full of decaying things. Be careful. Outside appearances. Your body, your, your ticker's still going. But spiritually, you're dead. And that's what Paul says. You're dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you once walked, according to the ion of this world. The, some translations render this the course of this world. Literally, that means age. It's a weird turn of phrase in Greek. Um, this could be, uh, Paul could be personifying the attitude or the age or the mind of this world. What is the mind of this world? What does it look like? Summed up in three words, rebellion against God. I was a youth pastor for several years before I got here, and it was always said kind of as a joke amongst our kids there that we ha had, but you ask them to do something they want to do, and they look at you and they say, I do what I want. And we would always giggle because it wasn't about anything serious. They, wouldn't, they didn't ever say that to me. I know they might have probably thought it, um, but they didn't ever respond that way when we asked them to do something. But if it was just something silly, and I said, hey, go over here, I do what I want. And just to get on my nerves, they'd walk the other direction funny thing is, I could very, it would be very difficult to sum up the age or the course of the ways of this world any differently than to say it is summed up in, I do what I want. That whenever someone is lost, they are walking according to the course of this world. They are walking according to rebellion against God. God, 
That's just the that's the way they're wired. They're spiritually dead. They are in bondage to that. And by the way, Paul says, Christians, you used to walk this way. So for my people here who know Jesus, here's some application for you. Whenever you're talking, so when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, please, please, please do not permit the Christian stereotype of I'm better than you and I want you to know it to persist. That's, that's, if somebody really knows the gospel, they know that the truth is not that we're better than you. The truth is that we're just as wicked as you. We just know our Redeemer who has forgiven us. I, I'm, I'm a pastor not because I'm some super Christian. I'm a pastor because this happens to be where Jesus has called me to serve. I'm not better. I'm not higher. I'm not mightier. I don't have some special, you, you know, power or whatever. I'm, I'm a regular. I'm, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all I am. Okay, I'm, I'm not special. And neither is any other Christian in terms of, you know, if I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, the only difference between me and you is the blood. That's a big difference. But I can't, I, I'm not higher and mightier and holier than you. Christians remember that when you're talking to a lost person. When you're talking to somebody you're trying to share the gospel with, remember that you once walked according to the course of this world. That you were once dead in trespasses and sins. So let's not miss that. And then here's the scariest part. Moving on down in verse 2. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. If you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, listen to me. Listen to me. If you don't know Jesus Christ, who are you operating according to? Who are you walking according to? The prince of the power of the air. What does, what does that mean? You see on your handout, Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what it means when it says the air. Heavenly We're talking about spiritual enemies. Who is the chief spiritual enemy? Satan. If you do not know Jesus Christ, I cannot say this any more emphatically because this is terrifying. If you do not know Jesus Christ, the dominant spiritual force directing your life right now is Satan himself. And here's the scary thing. You don't have the ability to break out. You're dead spiritually, unable to lift a finger, unable to lay, lay a hand, un, un, unable to do anything about it. You are, you are spiritually enslaved to demonic forces if you are lost. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ, Paul says right here that you walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. F.F. Bruce said the disobedient are rebels against the authority of God responsive to the, to the prompting of the arch rebel. 
Satan is the arch rebel. I do not want you to leave here today marching to the beat of Satan's drum. I don't want you to do it. Because here's what happens. You're, you're, I can think of a bunch of pigs in the Gospels one time. That Jesus shows up and the demoniac says, have you come here to torment me before it's time? And Jesus is about to cast them out and the demon begs, please, please don't send me into the abyss. There's a herd of pigs over there. Send me into the pigs. Let me take them. And Jesus permitted him to go. And do you know where the pigs went? Straight off a cliff. Destruction. That's where you're headed if you are controlled by demonic forces. And if you are lost, that's what's happening. You are controlled by demonic forces. Verse 3, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of of our flesh. Now, we've been going through Ephesians the last few weeks, and we've kind of been saying that Paul's having a dialogue with these Gentile believers, um, saying, I'm coming from a Jewish background, you're coming from a Gentile background, that we're coming to the same Christ, but we have different backgrounds of understanding, and Paul is trying to teach these Gentiles Hey, just because you come from a different background doesn't mean you're any less saved than we are. We've come to the same Christ, and I want you to understand what we understood when we got here. And Paul's making an argument here when he says, Among whom we also, who? The Jews. We once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. The Jews are the ones that had the law. They had the instruction of God. They knew right from wrong. Have you ever just said they ought to know better? You ever looked at somebody and said they ought to know better than that? Here's the thing, when you're spiritually dead, knowing better doesn't matter. They don't, a, a spiritually dead person doesn't care. The defining force in their life is they are walking according to, they're walking according to the, the beat of Satan's drum. And do you know what, you know why Satan is so effective at tempting because our flesh wants something and Satan goes, well, why shouldn't you have it? You can have that. You can do that. You can go there. You can be this. God just doesn't want you to. God's holding out on you. You are being held back from your full potential. Be all you can be. Be who you want to be. Follow your heart following a dead heart, following dead desires, following dead spiritual, there's no spiritual life there. And Paul says, we were the Jews, we had the law, we knew right from wrong. Look at, listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, verses 21 through 23. You therefore, he's talking to the, he's talking to the Jews at the beginning of Romans, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Let me modernize this for you. You who say, they ought to know better, do you know better? 
You who say they ought not do that, do you do that? I'll even go back to Sermon on the Mount. You who say they ought not do that, do you think about that, wishing you could do that? See, here's the truth is that sin is a much bigger problem than just what shows itself on the outside. Sin is a heart problem. And when Jesus starts saying things like, anybody who hates his brother without cause has murdered him in his heart. Anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus starts drawing our attention to the fact that sin is not just about our actions, it's about our heart. Why is it about our heart? Paul tells us it's because we are spiritually dead. And sin has started to show itself through our outward actions. Whatever's going on in your heart is eventually going to make its way out through your actions. It will not be hidden forever. Then Romans 8, 7, listen to what Paul says about the carnal mind. Paul says, because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, the earthly mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you're here and you're lost this morning, here's the truth about your fleshly mind. Your fleshly mind will never come into accordance with the law of God. You will never naturally obey God. There's no such thing as I ought to. In, in the life of someone who's spiritually dead, there's no ought to. There's I want to. And unfortunately, according to verse 3, and I want you to see Galatians 3.24, that the entire purpose of the law, um, the entire purpose of the law was to bring us to Christ. Um, Paul says, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul says in Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. What was the law's purpose? The law's purpose was to point out the sin in our lives so that we could see we are spiritually dead. We could see that, it, it, that there was nothing we could do on our own. And he says, we were by nature children of wrath. Just as the others, Jews and Gentiles, both children of wrath. Why? Because we're both equally spiritually dead. The Jews might just have been more conscious of it than the Gentiles at the time. Here's the scary thing about being lost. You say, I'm not lost. I'm not enslaved. I can do exactly what I want to do. Yes, but the reason that you're spiritually dead and enslaved is because you don't have a choice other than to do what you want to do. And what you want to do is sinful. If you're lost and you're spiritually dead and you're in sin, you go, but I want to do that. There's nothing stopping me from doing that. You're looking at it the wrong way. The right way to look at it, the biblical way to look at it, is that when you're spiritually dead, there is nothing to stop you from doing what you want. And if what you want is evil, every time you indulge that, Every time you chase that spiritually dead desire, what you're doing is you are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. That one day you're still going to have to answer to Jesus for every single one of those fleshly desires you pursued. Every single one of those fallen desires you pursued, you're going to have to answer to Jesus for that. In Christ, uh, outside of Christ, you are dead in your sins. You are destined for... For wrath, spiritual death is unresponsiveness, it's enslavement to the devil, but there is hope. If you've been sitting here and you've been saying, oh my goodness, 
I am, I'm, what am I going to do? I'm dead in sin. I'm helpless. I'm enslaved. I'm in bondage to my fleshly desires and my carnal mind. I don't know what I'm going to do. Here's the, here's the good news. In Christ, you can be alive and destined for glory. You don't have to maintain this state of spiritual death. Verse 4, but God, listen, if you're here and you're lost and you're going, what am I going to do about it? The words, but God, right here should be sweet music to you. That God is going to draw contrast here. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Look at God's reasoning for doing what he's about to do. Is it because we deserved anything? No. Is it because we earned anything? No. We didn't earn anything. Is it because we, we bought it? We worked long enough to get it? No. It's because God is rich in mercy and because God has great love with which he loved us. What did he do? Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I want to come back to church. I want to come to Jesus, but I really need to get my life straightened out first. You ever heard somebody say that? Anything of that nature? Here's what this actually is. This is somebody saying, I really need to go to the hospital, but before I go, I need to get better. That's not the way it works. Say, I want to fix my life. Again, I ask, what life? You don't have a life to fix. You're dead. What you need is resurrection. And praise God, I know somebody who specializes in that. <laughs> His name is Jesus. You know, he, you know it, he beat death in an exhibition match. It wasn't even close. Even when we were dead in trespasses, undeserving, without hope, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here's a good way to remember what grace means. I've said grace before is one of these Christianese words that we throw around a lot, but nobody ever takes the time to define. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That you didn't do anything to earn this life that God has given you. Jesus paid that. Jesus shed his blood for that. That's not me. Do you know that you can... Now, y'all, listen. Susan, don't shoot me. We got a sign-up sheet for Vacation Bible School back here. All right? I want you to go put your name on that list. You hear me, Stapleton? Hello? I want you to sign up. I want you to work Vacation Bible School. I do. But I don't want you to think that because you work Vacation Bible School, that's why Jesus loves you. You can open your bulletin. You can see our weekly budget needs. I would like to keep the lights in here on. I want you to give. God commands us to give. But do you know what? I don't want you to give so that you think God will be happy with you because you can give every penny in your bank account, but if you don't know Jesus, no salvation in that. Nothing. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to memorize Scripture. I want there to be an intake of God's Word in your life. I want that to happen. But do you know that you can read the Bible, to Bible, the Bible cover to cover every single month for every year for the rest of your life, and that will not save you? Do you know that? It's not going to do it. 
until you confess your sin to Jesus Christ and trust Him to forgive you and redeem you. Until you do that, you are dead in your sins. You have a carnal mind that is at enmity with God that cannot be subject to its law. It doesn't even want to be. You need to repent of your sin and you need to trust Jesus. You've been saved by grace, not by your works. And you just wait. Normally, the last three verses of this, of this passage, 8 through 10, are preached with it. But there's enough in 8 through 10. Y'all, y'all come back next week. They get their own treatment. If you get 8 through 10, that'll change your Christian life. Jesus' death and his resurrection are the vehicles for our spiritual life. We're made alive together with Christ. Look at 2 Timothy 2.11. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. This is one reason we baptize by immersion. One reason we baptize by immersion is because baptize literally means to immerse. There you go. That's one reason we do it. Second reason we do it is it's a very understandable picture of what happens when a person comes to Jesus Christ. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, they are they die with him and they are raised with him in newness of life. That's the reason we do it that way. So if we die with him, when you come to Christ, you die to yourself. This is why it doesn't make sense when somebody says, I know Jesus is your Savior, but is he your Lord? You know, no, nobody makes Jesus the Lord of their life. He is the Lord of your life, whether you like it or not. The question is whether or not you're going to submit to him. That's just a fact of the matter. Jesus is the Lord of your life, period. And if he is your Savior... Obedience to him is not a chore, it's a joy. So, what, if you die with him, you die to your sin. You die to the old you. The old you is gone. That you no longer lay claim, you no longer lay claim to your life. Jesus now owns that. Jesus now directs that. Jesus now rules that. If you die with him, you will also live with him. Jesus has been raised from the dead. We will be raised from the dead one day with him. But Jesus' death and resurrection are the vehicles of our spiritual life as opposed to our spiritual death. Look at Romans 6, 5 and 6. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be what of sin? Slaves. Remember what I was saying? When you're spiritually dead, when you walk according to the course of this world, when you walk according to the prince of the power of the air, you are enslaved. You don't have a choice but to live sinfully dead in your sins and trespasses. You're enslaved to it. You can't do anything about it. But when you die and you are raised with Christ, when you are given new spiritual life, guess what? Christian, you will now find that you have a choice about sinning. That you can say, you know what? I recognize that my flesh wants this, but I also recognize that this is contrary to the will and law of God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I no longer have to pursue the desires of my flesh. I don't have to do this anymore. And do you know Satan will do everything he can to get you to forget that? That, oh, I've got to have it. I've got to do this. I've got to. No, I don't. 
The Holy Spirit has given me spiritual life. He's given me a choice. I don't have to live this way anymore. Raised up together. Look at verse 6. This is incredible. Here's what, here's what happens when he's made us alive together in Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't know about y'all, but I'm, sitting in, I'm standing in Stapleton right now. You're sitting in your pew right now. What does it mean we're sitting together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Because this is in past tense, by the way. This is, saying, this is something that's already happened. So what does it mean God sit us there? Here's an idea. What if being sit in the heavenly... What if Paul's using the past tense right here? Because it's an event that is so sure, we may as well speak of it as though it's already occurred. That physically in time right now, I'm standing in Stapleton, but do you know one day I will be seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? That in Christ, I, I am included in him and his body. I'm seated in the heavenly places right now. You want to know how to find that? Well, well let's, not, let's not test it. I know it's true. But if this body were to expire right now, you know where I would find myself? To be absent from the body is to be present with my Lord. That's my home. That's where I'm going to be. In fact, it's so certain that's where I'm going to be. May as well just go ahead and talk about it. Like I'm there right now. That's what Paul's doing. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let this go through your mind for a second, that God saved you in order to be good to you. But I thought him saving me was being good to me. Yes, but let it blow your mind. He's not done yet. There's more. I'm not asking you to come to Jesus so that you'll stay out of hell. Believe me, I am asking you to do that. I don't want you to go to hell. I, I don't want that. That's not the main point, though, of me telling you to come to Jesus. Me telling you to come to Jesus is because I don't want you to miss the incredible goodness and kindness and greatness of what he has prepared for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there was no fire in hell, it would still be hell because you'd be missing out on what God had planned for his children. I don't want you to miss that. That God saved us in order to be good to us. I debated whether or not I should read this uh, because it's cheesy, but I love it. Um, as cheesy as it is, it made an impact on me when I was uh, younger. Um, and the, the artist that wrote this song took some artistic license, so please don't consider this a theological you know, PhD dissertation. Don't think of it that way. But I think the message is kind of dead on. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Carmen? He wrote a song called Lazarus Come Forth one time. And there is a, a portion of that song where Lazarus is dead and he is uh, with the saints of old and they are sharing what God did in their life and they're glorifying him for it. And he finds himself in the middle of this meeting. And this is what he hears. 
Moses shook his stick, said, now this meeting come to order. Can I get a witness for the Lord tonight? Abraham kicked it off, said, I want y'all to know that I knew him. He gave a child to my barren wife. Isaac waved his hand and said, hey, daddy, I knew him too. And Jacob jumped up and said, amen, grandpa, preach it. Old dignified Solomon adjusted his robe and said, I knew him. He made me so smart, I started to teach it. Ezekiel said, I knew him as a wheel within a wheel. Job said, man, he healed me when I was almost dead. Samson said, I knew him when some Philistines tried to jump me. I took a donkey jawbone and busted a few heads. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we knew him in a fiery furnace. Jonah said, man, he gave me a second chance. Daniel cried out, I knew him in a hungry den of lions, and the Holy Ghost hit King David, and he just started to dance. Lazarus got so excited, he shouted, hey, I knew him too. And Moses put down a stick and said, hey, who's the new kid? Needless to say, the room got real quiet when Lazarus said, but I knew him in a way you all never did. You see, I walked with him and talked with him. I saw how his teachings all the crowd. Those famous tears of compassion I could actually see. He used to come over to my house after church, synagogue. And my sisters would make him dinner. Every month I even supported his ministry. You see, man, I watched him confront the Pharisees. I was there when he fed the 5,000. I heard the people gasp when he healed the lame. You see, man, I even remember the littlest things, the things most folks would forget, like the simple, loving way he'd just call my name. And then the next thing that happens is Jesus does and Lazarus walks out. But I want you to just process in your head that one day there will be, the choir sang about it, one day there will be a great day. There's going to be this day called the wedding supper of the Lamb, and Jesus is going to be there. And do you know what, for all eternity, what we're going to be doing, we're, we're going to be telling the same story over and over and over again, just with different details. Ask everybody, tell me why you're here. The same reason you are, because I was dead in sin. In my sins, in my trespasses, unresponsive to God, enslaved by the devil, unable to do anything about it. But God, because of his richness and mercy and the greatness of his love with which he loved me, he made me alive together with Christ. And now let me tell you how he did it in my life. And there's enough of those stories that we can go all through eternity. And y'all, if you're a Christian, I pray, you'll, uh, we ain't got nothing but time. It's a good thing when we've been 10, 000, there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, that we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun because 10,000 years ain't going to be long enough. Lord knows this little pastor can't get his name out of his mouth in 45 minutes. What about you? What's your story? Can you tell me when Jesus called you out of your spiritual deadness? I promise you. It's a greater miracle than Lazarus being called out of the grave for Jesus to call you out of your spiritual deadness. What's your story? When did Jesus call you out of your spiritual deadness? If you don't have a story, if you, if you can't tell me for 100% certain I've confessed my sins to Jesus, you, you, you might have been younger, okay? I was seven. Can I give you all the details? No. But if you ask me, how do I know 
I have a home in heaven? I can tell you because Jesus' blood was shed for me. Because I'm dependent on that, and I'm not dependent on my own works. I'm saved by grace. I'm dependent on that every day of my life. But if you're sitting here and you go, you know what, I've tried. I've worked hard my whole life. I've tried to give. I've tried to be a good person. I, you know, I don't know. Have you ever trusted Jesus? If not, you are spiritually dead in your sins and trespasses. You are enslaved to the devil. You are walking according to the course of this world. And what I want you to do is I want you to repent of that attitude. If you are feeling poor right now and say, you know what, I need to repent. You know what happens? The only person who can call a dead person out of death is God. Do not mock him calling you. Do not sit there and say, I don't want... No, this, this is just like, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to have to do this whole repentance thing. You're dead. you got an opportunity to be not dead. Be not dead, please. You're not willing yourself to respond. God's calling you to respond. I beg you. I urge you. Do not reject that. Don't push that away. In just a couple minutes, Preston's going to lead us in a couple verses of a hymn. You can come up here and you can talk to me. We can set up a time to talk later. I want to be able to talk with you more at length and talk to you about what it means to trust Christ. And more than we can do in the 30 seconds you'll have up here. You've got a guest card on the side of your bulletin. If you are absolutely scared of walking the aisle, guess what? It is not a biblical requirement to walk an aisle. Do you know that? You don't have to do it. You can fill out the guest card and I'll follow up with you. Talking to me about Jesus is biblically required. You can catch me at the back door. We can talk about meeting together then. I just don't want you to leave here today feeling the prompting of the Holy Spirit to come to Christ in repentance, and you say, no, I would prefer to remain dead. I don't want you to do that. I'm going to pray, Preston, you come lead us in a couple verses, and if the Holy Spirit's prompting you, you come. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the fact that you've given us the opportunity to be alive in Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to not be stuck in spiritual deadness, enslavement to sin, trespass in the devil. Lord, that you can call us out. You can give us resurrection. You can give us spiritual life and the certain hope of a future seated in the heavenly places with you, that you might show us the exceeding riches of your grace and goodness to us in eternity future. Lord, we love you. Thank you for that. And if there's somebody in here today, in fact, Jesus, I'm not going to pray like that. I'm not going to pray if there's somebody in here today because statistically there are multiple people in here today. I pray for the people in here today that do not know you, Lord, that they would repent, that they would come to you for spiritual life, that, you would, that they would literally see revival in their life because of the work of your Holy Spirit based on what Jesus, what you did on the cross. I pray that you would save them, that you would draw them to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.